Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our smartphone app, or at the website subchina.com. SubChina features original, independent, and uncensored reporting from and about China, covering everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, and from the Belt and Road Initiative to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in Xinjiang. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo. Today, it is a special edition of the Seneca Podcast. I'm at the Association for Asian Studies Conference in Denver, Colorado, and uh, just downstairs in the lobby, I ran into my friend Nuri Turkel, and I thought I'd drag him up to my impromptu studio up here in my room and talk to him about what is the latest right now. You remember Nuri who is the head of the uh, Uyghur Human Rights Project. He's the, the founder and director of the Uyghur Human Rights Project and has been active in the, the Uyghur dissident community for a very, very long time. He's a Washington, D.C.-based lawyer. Nuri, I understand you had a panel today. Maybe we could start off just by t- talking about uh, what the state of, of American understanding is right now about the plight of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang right now. Since our last conversation... I can report that there are growing interest uh, among American elites, uh, particularly in the policy uh, circle, academia, uh, in addition to media reporting uh, that, has still on, that is still ongoing. So there's a momentum. Uh, that momentum has not been translated into a real policy action yet. The administration is still considering some sanction under the Magnitsky, Global Magnitsky uh, Act. And the U.S. Congress is considering uh, at least two bills uh, currently. Let's talk about these options right now that are before us. So the Global Magnitsky Act would only sanction individuals, Think presumably would be people like Chen Quanguo, who I don't even know if they have assets that would be affected by uh, American banking actions. And I don't know that they you know, care very much to travel to the United States. So I wonder whether that is even enough, something like Global Magnitsky, uh, that would target so narrowly uh, what are the two congressional bills uh, right now, and what would they what would they do? There are two uh, bills, uh, draft bills, being introduced um, in the last Congress and reintroduced in this Congress. The first one is Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, co-sponsored by Senator um, Senators Bob Menendez and Marco Rubio in mm-hmm. the Senate for the Senate version, and then uh, for the House version, it was introduced by. Christopher Smith of New Jersey and uh, Tom Sozi of New York. Uh, bipartisan support, both of them, but uh, bipartisan bill. The Senate version has over 20, I think 24, last time I count, uh, sponsors. And the House version has about 40, uh, including uh, Speaker, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Right. And then the, the second uh, draft bill 
was introduced by Brad Sherman of California mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Ted Yoho of Florida. Uh, it has about uh, a dozen supporters. Eventually, uh, I believe these two bills uh, might be merged because there's some overlap. Uh, What's the difference between them and the way they're currently drafted? The Sherman-Yoho bill is uh, focusing on the U.S. businesses. Okay. The, so this would be targeting, for example, companies that are selling surveillance gear yes. that, that we know is being used by the Ministry of Public Security or other Assisting law the Chinese government to uh, improve or establish uh, their security apparatus. Okay, so that's the Sherman and Yoho bill. Yoho bill. And then the uh, the Rubio and Smith bill. Mm-hmm. Um, is folk, it, it's much broad. It has reporting requirements for both uh, law enforcement and administration. And also uh, one of the significant things uh, in that bill is to establish a special coordinator for um, the Uyghurs at the State Department. Um, and it will it will also um, uh, as a specific provisions uh, that is meant to protect the Uyghur American communities from uh, Chinese government's um, uh, harassment uh, retaliation against the activists. So it's much more broad bill uh, has um, it was introduced 115th Congress uh, with the hope that it will go through, but for some unknown reason it didn't happen. So uh, it's been actively considered. Uh, we were told that there's a chance that that bill uh, will be finalized through various steps in the Congress uh, sometime this summer. That's all encouraging. I guess one of the criticisms, though, that I hear is that the plight of the Uyghurs is being used instrumentally by people who are interested in anything with which they can beat China. Uh, because... If even if Uyghurs were not being interned in hundreds of thousands of number, uh, in in the concentration camps in Xinjiang right now, uh, there are a whole bunch of other issues right now that bedevil relations between China and the United States. This one seems to be one that they they know uh, will really activate people who are concerned with human rights, rightly because this is an atrocity. Uh, but there's a sense that that some of the authors, I mean, people like Chris Smith. Uh, they are not interested in the plight of the Uyghurs per se. They're more interested in anything that they can be, use instrumentally to attack China. The other, the other criticism is that uh, let's look at, at at Xi Jinping today. We were just talking earlier. He's in this full honey badger mode right now. He doesn't care uh, what we do. He, he, you know, something like Global Magnitsky would just roll off his back like water off a duck's back, and he he's. He's, he's got a really thick hide right now. I'm curious, what are other options that we should be exploring to change the realities on the ground right now? For example, why isn't the United States able to use one of the countries with which it is close to, in the Islamic world to back-channel conversations or, or, around this? I'm not hearing any talk of this and not seeing any of this happen. What, what, are you aware of anything like that? Um a few thoughts on that uh, uh, important question. First of all, uh, I don't think that the Uyghur crisis should be politicized. This issue is non-political. This is a matter of conscience. Uh, we're talking about a mass internment of an ethnic minority in the 21st century. Yes. Uh, it's not a political issue. This is not a, a party politics. It should not be utilized for domestic or international consumption. End of the story. So... And also, it may also uh, 
harden China's government's position if you make it too much of a um, uh, China bashing tool. So uh, the people who are speaking on behalf of the Uyghurs, uh, either uh, official statements, publications, and reporting, got to be a little bit more careful on how it's being portrayed. I think they should focus on the humanitarian aspect of the crisis. Number one. Number two, uh, the, one of the reasons that the uh, international community uh, has not been able to change the Chinese behavior is because the boat is too small. Hmm. Uh, speaking against the Chinese government's behavior, it must be international. It has to be in order to maximize the pressure and minimize the retaliation against a specific country uh, or any political leader. This has to be an international co- uh, coalition effort. In the end, we want two things. One, we want the camps to be shut down. It's an embarrassment to the Chinese people even in the history. Yes. Uh, it needs to be shut down. And two, we wanted to be able to restore Uyghurs um, uh, dignity basic economy, dignity. Right. Yeah, give their respect and uh, g- uh, give them uh, the dignity and respect uh, back. So those are the things that are uh, pressing. And this does not require political uh, position or uh, political debate. We've seen in the history how it ends when a government locks up someone based on their religion, ethnicity. We've seen this movie before. We have seen it. So I, so anyone who is uh, concerned about this uh, need to focus on uh, the humanitarian aspect and international coalition. Everybody should speak in one voice. Expressing concern is a wonderful thing. We've been hearing people expressing concerns, but taking a bold. Uh, action with the uh, true, uh, decent leadership is another. Yes. That is what is not being shown yet. Like the old saying goes, uh, in order to prevent or handle the shark attack, we need a bigger boat. Uh, and also, thirdly, uh, the the uh, the Chinese government must see some damage or cost for what they're doing uh, right. domestically, internationally. At the end of the day... Not just reputational damage, but yeah. you mean economic pain you need. Yes, uh, and, and this brings us to the next point, because President Xi Jinping and his supporters are making a mistake. In, in two things. One, through the Uyghur issue, Xi Jinping's China has been seeing what it's for. It, it's not good for the future of the Chinese government and Chinese society or Chinese people, per se. They have to, uh, and they have to take into consideration how it's being judged in the history. That's right. And then two, um, if this trend continues, why this has to be international effort? The other countries may follow the same method. They squelch domestic political resentment. It's not good for the civilization. Right. Uh, and then third, if if the the world allows uh, Xi Jinping's China to continue to use technology to suppress its own people. This technology means to suppress advanced political oppression in other countries and other dictatorial regime will become a new norm. And we have to ask ourselves, is this okay in the 21st century? Is this the type of society that we have to live in? And I think we all know the answer to that. It is absolutely not acceptable. So, and We're then, not, seeing it not only spread to other authoritarian states, but spreading outside of Xinjiang into other parts of yeah. China too, right? It's it, it's bad, you know. It's bad domestically and globally. Um, uh, it, it, you know, as, as I don't think that anyone disputes or disagrees that uh, China should have a rightful place in its uh, in international stage or international arena. But with this kind of mindset that the Chinese leadership have shown, this will 
this will create a problem in their relationship with the world eventually. So, and then uh, uh, we talked, we briefly touched about the cost. The uh, American corporations uh, still doing business in China. Foreign Policy magazine listed uh, over 500 Fortune 500 companies. Uh, they are still doing business. So these company have, companies have to speak out. And, and the business community speaks out will bring a, a positive change in this, uh, in this crisis, in my belief. Right. Um, and, and we, we talked about the cost. When you look at the, the Chinese government's response, uh, since the issue been reported, crisis being reported last, since last summer extensively, they've been trying to change the uh, narrative. They've been trying to restructure the headline, but they have not been very successful. The only thing that we have seen in the Chinese government's reaction is to make them acknowledge the existence of these camps uh, that they euphemistically call re-education camps. Right, or now they're even calling them uh, boarding schools. Boarding schools. It's just, yeah, yeah, that's I mean, right. Boarding schools have to be teach like the school, manage like a military, protect like a prison. This is Chen Chenko's statement. Right. Is that how you manage a boarding? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the one that I plan to send my child. To. <laughs> no, no, I think that there are there's criticism that is in good faith, and there's criticism that uh, is clearly sort of part of uh, that. That this is this is from the Chinese perspective. I think that they. Know the difference. So, as if you, as you say, as you say, the business community speaks out. They are not. It's. It's. Beijing does not believe them to have. You know, only sort of a, a China bashing agenda in mind. I think they, they, their criticisms would be taken on board more seriously than criticisms by certain American politicians, and I think that's important to to to, to distinguish because there are more and less effective criticisms of this. I think that people who, who speak out against the atrocity that's going on right now and do it from a position of uh, wanting what is, you know, genuinely wanting what is in China's long-term best interest. And, you know, I sincerely believe, as you, you say, this is bad for China. This is bad for the world. I think it can be, it could possibly be taken on board more seriously by Beijing. And then U.S. companies like uh, the global uh, multinational corporations have to ask themselves a good question. Are we going to be end up being uh, Thermo Fisher? Uh, eventually, you know, become a, a, a talking point or the headline in the major newspapers and forced to give up the practice. You can still have a practice, business practice, but it has to be healthy. You have to use, use your influence. Recently, uh, some members of Congress complained about uh, American uh, corporate executives lobbying on behalf of the Chinese government. That that same type of techniques should be used in Zhongnanhai as well. That's right. I mean, I think they are. I mean, and the part of the problem is, I mean, there are there's there are fewer and fewer people uh, who Beijing will actually listen to. Uh, there are very you know fewer and fewer of the people who uh, can get meetings in Zhongnanhai. And those people will not necessarily be the ones who are going to most effectively raise this issue. So we're in a difficult situation. Let me ask you a question, Nuri. Have you, uh, in your organization, been in contact with any of the Democratic candidates? And uh, have you uh, managed to get some of the, the, the candidates to, to include discussion of this in their talking points when they talk about American foreign policy? Um, Senators uh, Warren? And Gillibrand uh, signed on the 
Rubio Menendez bill. Mm-hmm. Very that, good. Yeah, that we we have seen uh, some interest in uh, certain candidates' uh, foreign policy team, particularly uh, Senator Warren's team, reportedly very interested uh, trying to work on a policy paper. But directly answering your question, uh, no one has contacted the Uyghur organizations or Uyghur experts. Uh, to see how the Uyghur crisis should be included in the uh, campaign foreign policy platform. But is it part of your your strategy to reach out proactively yeah. to those campaigns? Now? Yes, we have. Uh, actually, we've been doing a few things at, uh, at the same time. We are uh, working through the uh, policy circle, uh, trying to uh, encourage policy experts to make objective policy recommendations to the various governments. I don't think that anyone was prepared to see this level of, uh, or, or anything in this scope and scale uh, in the modern era. So I don't think that anyone has a clear answer. Right. That's one. So we've been encouraging uh, policy um, experts at acad- in academia or a think tank level to, to come up with something workable to solve, resolve the issue. And at the same time, uh, we are working with the Congress, encouraging the members of Congress to recruit more supporters. At the same time, we're using people to call their members to uh, sign on. Uh, that's on the legislature. And also on the administrative side, we've been working with the um, various uh, senior government officials, regularly updating them uh, with the development, at the same time asking them to take action. Um because it's long overdue. Uh, it's almost a year since we've been talking about this. Something has to be done. But I do know that something in the process of building up, uh, it could be any time, but uh, it shouldn't take a year to no, have. Yeah. Uh, in that year where this has been a, a constant point of, of, of discussion, certainly within the China-watching community, uh, it's been very frustrating to see that levels of internment seem to have only increased. Yes. I'm hearing anecdotally that even in uh, parts of, outside of Nanjiang, I mean, in, 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 even in Urumqi, yeah. we're, we're seeing uh, higher levels of people who are disappearing. This includes U.S. permanent residents. I'm sorry? This includes U.S. permanent residents. Right. There are now U.S. permanent residents who have yeah. been interned. Uh, yes. And, and give you a quick uh, a, uh, yeah, uh, statistics. Uh, there's no end in sight that anything that internationally been done is at least changing the thinking of the Chinese government, other than they're just being uh, very uh, uh, active in their propaganda campaign. Uh, specific, specifically, they keep building camps. Last November... Uh, Australian-based think tank surveyed uh, 28 uh, facilities that they were able to identify through satellite imagery. The expansion rate in less than two years was 465 percent. Wow! And then, uh, and even in recent months, we yeah, still continue to see the, the increased building. Reuters yeah. uh, did their own survey uh, of 80 some facilities. Of those 80, 86, uh, they surveyed, focused on 36 of them. Uh, the expansion, uh, the area of expansion is equal of 140 soccer fields. And BBC uh, late last year uh, did another reporting. Uh, it shows that the authorities are building the largest prison camp in the world just outside of Urumqi. 
my God. So, so this is this is still happening real time. What about numbers? Do we have? I know Adrian Zenz has revised his his estimates and now puts the number at well over a million, at maybe 1.5 million. Is that correct? Scott Busby, uh, a senior State Department official, testified in U.S. Congress last late last year, said that based on the uh, estimate, uh, the numbers. The number is eight hundred thousand to two million. This is the State Department. It's a position. long. Well, There's a big range, but what what is your best estimate? I think I think it's hard to ascertain the exact number, but I would go with Adrian Zen's uh, recent uh, one point one because he he's looking at the construction bids, and the people in a certain pocket of uh, neighborhoods and areas. The percentage. Percentage, been, uh, and then uh, using the government's uh, own data. Right. To come up with this, but but I, I believe that U.S. government may have even much more reliable information. That's very disturbing. Is there any indication to suggest that at least some of the, the more horribly coercive elements, you know, torture, uh, sleep deprivation, and things like that, that they've re- they've they've dialed that down under international scrutiny at least? Um, a German-based Uyghur scholar recently released um, a picture of his father. Uh, screenshot uh, because of his campaign his father uh, former pres- uh, professor at Kashgar University was at least released to his house uh, we've seen a couple of these uh, similar incidents and there's another Uyghur doctor very active uh, who started Me Too Uyghur movement on social media recently told the meet, uh, press uh, Western press that his parents have been also released uh, from the facilities. Let's talk about the Me Too Uyghur movement and and uh, and any additional efficacy we can squeeze out of this. What tell me uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it? Tell us uh, how this campaign got started and uh, the extent of it so far. In February, um, the um, death of a very famous Uyghur musician was reported, and Turkish government made a statement, a very powerful statement. Uh, if I can paraphrase, it, what's happening is is a is a is a, a shameful events are taking place in modern era, and the Chinese government responded with a video of this gentleman. A uh, proof of life video. Proof of, of life video. Is that authentic? Do we... uh, people are very uh, suspicious or dubious about mm-hmm. the timing, the the facial expression, even uh, his look. Even the way that he is saying that I've been investigated, even though previously he was told to be sent to eight years uh, imprisonment. So after that, and some smart Uyghurs, they said, how about my mom? How about my sister? How about my classmates? So they started this uh, short video. Chinese government, can you release my mother's video? Uh, so it become a, a build up. It become a Me Too Uyghur movement and social media. It's still ongoing. Yes. Before that, I mean, this is this is one of the, again, the Chinese government made a huge mistake. Uh, initially, they tried to prevent the Uyghur issues from becoming international or internationalized. They tried uh, different tactics, but now it's in a global issue. And and they prevent uh, tried to prevent this to be known as a concentration camp or internment camps. And now everybody's talking about it. And, and trying to really, with the release of that uh, proof of life uh, uh, video, uh, they're trying to accomplish different perspectives. And now it's becoming much more, it's, everything is like creating backlash. We'll give them enough rope and they will hang themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so this Me Too Uyghur movement is building up still. So what is amazing about this is that a lot of Uyghurs uh, who were not comfortable sharing their stories are coming out. So the more people sh- show up and come out, 
telling their stories, the uh, the more people know about it. Eventually, this will become some uh, result in some uh, tangible action. Ancient Chinese strategy says you always have to leave your enemy and escape. If you surround the city on four sides, he'll fight stubbornly to the death. You need to leave one gate unguarded and let them escape. Is there a way right now for us, uh, people who are concerned about this issue, to push China and still give it a way to save face and back down uh, without sort of uh, an unacceptable level of humiliation on Beijing's part? That's a great question um, that uh, that concerned people, especially in the um, decision making level in various governments have been asking, how do we how how could we help ourselves and the Chinese government to get out of this mess? So one way I think uh, I think the Chinese government at least need to stop building camps. Yes. And release those who have nothing to do with China's security concern. That would be goodwill uh, that the Chinese can do in in the short term. In the long term, they should shut down the camps and and restore Uyghurs' cultural and political rights enshrined in the Chinese constitution and at least uh, in their uh, autonomy uh, laws. I mean, this is a ba- this is not too much to ask. Any responsible government would would find these to be a reasonable uh, a request. But the problem is, uh, whoever advised uh, Xi Jinping back in 2014 and 15. Uh, people like Hu Lianhe, uh, who was in a very high level official at the uh, Tongjianbu uh, United Front, mm-hmm. given uh, it, it led the Chinese into a very uh, dark uh, direction. That's right. So, where the project uh, is nothing less than essentially eradication yeah. of many features of the Uyghur culture and religion. Yeah, specifically said the materialistic satisfaction will not get us the uh, stability. We need to look into spirituality, meaning. Anything that is uh, uh, connected to ethno-national pride eventually will political th- become a political threat. Oh, forget about diversity. Diversity is not going to work. We have to create a, uh, uh, a one nation under the one language, one culture. So this is, you know, think about it. Um, some people may not like this, but uh, we know that some people believe that uh, homosexuals can be converted to heterosexuals. Right. It's a human nature, you know. The, how would you how would you be able to convert uh, an ethnic group from practicing that religion since 12th, 13th century, speaking that language, living uh, that uh, life, appreciating that way of life, into something completely foreign? So us against them mentality is leading the current mindset. Uh, this will end up. I don't think the Chinese government will succeed in this. Yeah, you know, it would be horrifying to think that they could. Are they, are they going to be able to uh, get rid of all of them who has been in the camps? I don't think so. What about people who are broken? Even, even you know, uh, one thing that the, what uh, listener uh, your listener need to think about is that uh, with the current uh, uh, the ongoing um, oppression, mass detention, surveillance state, this exportation of uh, China's oppression to other countries actually hardening the Uyghurs. That's right. It's radicalizing and hardening them. And, and how There's is no, Beijing not convinced of the, the truth of this? No one, even the outsiders cannot rationalize it. Even the people who had a soft spot, goodwill towards communist government, now thinking like, wow, this is um, now right. So how would you, what do you expect from people who, who are part of that uh, uh, victimhood? That's right. It's a horrifying idea. I mean, this the the the, the hubris involved in in 
thinking that we're they're going to be able to to coerce a transformation on that scale and and a mass project of assimilation that that's just so so violent and coercive it's just uh there's there's a word for this it's called cultural genocide right yeah i'm glad that you said it's that. ethnocide it's yeah right. the um the Uyghur communities around the world is um, is going through a very tough time, crippling anxiety, uh, sense of uh, guilt, hopelessness. Uh, Chen Chengguo once said that um, in order to accomplish our goal, which is maintain, uh, uh, create and maintain stability, we have to break the roots connection. Right. Basically. Uh, the Uyghurs feeling disconnected from their family members, including myself. Um, just the simple things such as calling your parents to say, how are you? To checking up with them. The basic things. Like we Just imagine that you hear your mother died in uh, concentration camps through Radio Free Asia. Right. Just imagine that you recognize your children in the Chinese government propaganda material as a happy uh, child. Just imagine uh. that you you hear your parents telling you that they should have gone two, three years ago so that they will not have to deal with this horrible situation and leave the world with a bad taste. Just imagine that you manage to go to uh, your homeland and you were not able to see your sister because your uh, iris uh, was not scanned, uh, were not scanned or part of the government data. Just imagine that you walk out and try to go to your parents' cemetery and the Chinese government prevents you from going there because it's to religion. Just imagine that your name is Mohammed and then this person with the name Mohammed from Saudi Arabia's Peloran, gets very cozy with Xi Jinping and phrases him for banning his name in China. So this <laughs> is the crazy world that we live in. Oh my God. Is, who, who are you referring to? Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi president. MBS, right. Yeah, oh, MBS. Right. And he, he should have asked Xi Jinping, Mr. President, what is wrong with my name? Do you like my beard? Right. And wh- this, is, this raises the obvious question of, so Erdogan in, in February made some strong statements, but so far in the rest of the Islamic world, all we've seen is the uh, Malaysian prime minister-in-waiting uh, who... Uh, is somebody who has suffered, you know, political imprisonment himself, and 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 knows very well, has spoken out on this. But you're, we're still hearing so very little in the rest of the Islamic world. We had talked about this last time that you were on the show, but do you have any new thinking about what it will take to move the Islamic world? Uh, I think the Chinese government more? has been very effective. We, I mean, this is this is not uh, this is not uh, something new to. Um, a China-related conversation these days. Uh, people using 3C, coercive, corrupt, corrosive uh, Chinese campaign, influence campaign around the world, and which has been very effective in the uh, developing countries and Muslim countries for a couple of reasons. One, uh, so those countries um, believe that uh, China is out there to help them to build uh, schools and hospitals and roads, whereas so-called Western imperialists, imperialists, the United States, for one, bombing their cities and, and their country. So there's a, there's a, a kind of a, a false premise being promoted and, and being understood by various Muslim communities, and it's working for the Chinese government's benefit, for better or worse. And then two, um, uh, Chinese government somewhat uh, 
convinced its Muslim allies. Uh, Secretary Pompeo said last week that China has its own league when it comes to human rights violations. So they they managed to make these countries to believe that this current crisis was in the making of the United States or West. This this sentiment is widely being. Well, it, it doesn't help when our president pursues a ban on Muslims or. I mean, it, it certainly doesn't. It, 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 it does plays not help. right into Beijing's hand. It does not help. And the, the uh, uh, let's face it, let's be frank about this. Uh, uh, we have a problem with Islamophobia all around the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. And, uh, and 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 this this killer in New Zealand uh, was apparently uh, admiring uh, China's treatment of its Muslim people. It didn't. He didn't say that specifically, but he said that, yeah, I, I he, actually took the time to He agreed with that. the lack of diversity. Yeah, he, he praised China as a, basically an ethnostate. This is a regular talking point in, in all these quote-unquote alt-right people. They, they, they look at these countries of East Asia like Korea or Japan or the PRC. and they, So the Chinese government, yeah. one, is uh, buying out the silence from the Muslim countries, mm-hmm. continue to. Uh, it is a disgrace that the uh, Organization of Islamic Conference just several days ago come out and and phrase the Chinese government. This is uh, this is this is more than just a, just um, a disgraceful uh, things that they've done. And then the two that are, that the uh, the Chinese government has been very effective in doing is that uh, this is not true. This is the making by the West to undermine. China rise. Does anyone sincerely fail to, to believe the evidence of their eyes, though? I mean, look, this is fairly, I, mean, I don't know how you could have it more well documented right now. We've seen now, we've seen footage from inside camps. We've seen so much satellite imagery. We've seen, we've seen on the ground in 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 the, the cities and, and towns of, of Xinjiang, empty neighborhoods. Where do they imagine these people have gone? I mean, how are... Like, I mean, what are they buying this boarding school idea? I think they, these handpicked or selected uh, places that these delegations visited uh, led them to believe that uh, the Western press has been circulating fake news. Even where they, they've allowed the Western press to go, though, we, we are treated to these, these grotesque tableaus of, for example, they saw these Uyghur people singing in English, if you're happy and you know what, clap your hands. I mean, how... First of all, how utterly tone deaf. I mean, if your goal is to convince people that 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 these people are not being mistreated and brainwashed, that's the last thing you would do. I know, and it also um, uh, shows how desperate the yeah. Chinese government yeah. has been trying yeah. to restructure the headline or the narrative. Um, I don't think that they have been successful. This issue no. came up today uh, during the uh, uh, panel discussion. They have not been uh, successful. I think that the Chinese government, the propaganda organizations within the government, underestimating the reasonableness, uh, intelligence of the people in the free societies. I don't think that anyone with a fair mind would believe in that uh, uh, manufactured images that they've been showing around the world. Uh, I, how... so? If you were to t- talk to somebody like me, somebody who I think has a reputation for f- being fair when it comes to t- reporting on China and talking about China, how do I, somebody like me who I think still has some credibility among the maybe more nationalistic or more more sort of pro-PRC crowd, how, how do I convince them? How do I bring them around to this position? Um, the 
one way to change their views is that um, they need to stop worrying about what the Chinese government think of them. You know, recently you've done a show about self-censorship. Uh, speaking truth is very imp- it's empowering. And I think that you will gain respect from your Chinese counterpart being truthful. So if you're tiptoeing around and just ignoring the obvious and pre- uh, pretend that you did not know something so obvious happening does not get you the type of respect that you're uh, expecting from the Chinese. And also, um, you need to, um, the people need to understand in the past, you know, those who kind of blaming the Uyghurs as troublemakers. Now need to see, look, the Chinese government is pretty, uh, pretty uh, successful, especially during the period of 2009 through 2015. Right. Uh, there was a very active social engineering taking place. They created this generational gap for particularly the uh, individuals who were born in 2000 and upward. I've already been very cynified. So this unnecessary, um, out of proportion, uh, uh, measures and, and, and construction of constru- uh, the modern day, uh, concentration camps will eventually will backfire. They will create backlash. So, so the, seeing the Chinese government's policies, uh, through the lenses of the Uyghurs will help you to understand, uh, what this government is up, up against when it comes to minority rights. So, you know, the diversity society, diverse society is a healthy society. It shouldn't be feel, fearful about it. So the, this kind of basic um, um, understanding uh, could help them to change position. I, I am a member of a listserv. Uh, there are a lot of China uh, scholars, experts, and journalists. I hardly see any discussion about the Uyghurs, even on the faces of this crisis that is taking place in the last two years. I'm a that, member of that same listserv, and I, I agree with you. There that, that shows how timid uh, even people who are well-versed about the issue has been. You know, uh, privately, you can say, oh, I, the Chinese are doing horrible things to the Uyghurs, but that should be public. Uh, just uh, privately uh, talking about you expressing your displeasure is fundamentally different than publicly speaking out or encouraging those who can make a decision to take a bold action. My own organization, SubChina, and uh, and the Syndicate Podcast, we have been trying. We talk about it. Uh, we have a column by Darren Byler that runs uh, regularly about the situation in Xinjiang. Uh, what more can we be doing right now? Um, I think you should invite uh, more uh, China experts or Xinjiang experts, the Uyghur experts, to uh, continue this public education. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, we have not seen a governmental, societal uh, reaction the way that a reasonable uh, people would expect is because the Uyghur issue is still uh, relatively unknown. Uh, I'm personally very grateful that you mentioned the Uyghur crisis in every opening of your podcast. And very uh, early uh, early on, uh, last summer, uh, one of your colleagues uh, did a, a nice summary, a timeline of the events unfolding. Uh, it was very educational. And I'm, I'm, I'm profoundly uh, thankful that you invited this expert, by uh, Darren Byler, to um, uh, publish a monthly column. Uh, I think the way that you um, uh, educating your listeners or informing your uh, listeners in an objective way uh, has been very useful. I heard people talk about the things being discussed on your show uh, by uh, experts like Jim Mulward uh, and others. Uh, I think that you should you should c- continue to do that. Uh, public education is very important because uh, at the end of the day, uh, I I believe that. 
the Chinese people uh, will need to speak up and take an ownership of this problem. Absolutely. Uh, uh, with your um, uh, reach to uh, China experts, Chinese-speaking listeners, eventually will make them to take a position in the same way that some of the white people stood up for the uh, precisely preci- for the protection of the oppressed like the African Americans in the United States. And that's what I'd like to see. And I, I, maybe we can end this segment by talking about how can we reach out to to sympathetic Han Chinese people in the PRC, people who 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 can really make a difference. I mean, I I feel like we have to be careful because there is always the danger of just galvanizing them of of you know when 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 they are being browbeaten sometimes they they really their hackles go up they become very defensive and they're not amenable to persuasion and this is true of all people there's it's it's a hard thing to do but it is so utterly necessary to convince ordinary chinese people that what their government is doing in xinjiang is flat out wrong how do we reach them i think um you know the two things um that has been preventing from that kind of uh, uh, a desirable uh, reaction uh, from the Chinese community. One is uh, the anxiety that the Chinese government created and using as a tool. Uh, so the censorship and this sort of thing. Yes, right. and then also the same type of uh, tools being used outside of China as well. Uh, in addition to that, the Chinese government has been very effective in uh, a public opinion campaign. Uh, a psychological campaign to make the ordinary Han Chinese, even the fair-minded Han Chinese, to believe that there's a genuine Uyghur threat. Mm-hmm. At least recognizing that what the Chinese government has been doing in the 21st century, criminalizing the entire population collectively, uh, is not good for the Chinese civilization. You know, it sounds like a pep talk, but we still talk about Holocaust today. You know, white people uh, are uh, in the, the, the generation who lives in the uh, post-Second World War uh, era still have to be held accountable for something done by a similar people who have no connection to whatsoever. I mean, the Chinese people. And, and also one other thing that people should also think about is that this is not going to stay in uh, Uyghur's homeland. The Uyghurs' life and their homeland had been used as a laboratory for surveillance, uh, 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 total surveillance uh, by the Chinese government. This will be the life for the Tibetan people, I'm afraid. This will be the life for the uh, Chinese people living on on the other side of the uh, the, the area. Uh, eventually, this is working. The governments, if something is working, they're not going to change behavior. They will continue to test it out. Eventually, the, this boils down to one issue. The concentration camps in, um, in Uyghur's homeland is just a symptom of the larger problem. Boils down to uh, CCP's insecurity, uh, Xi Jinping's survival, a struggle for survival as a sole leader, a leader without the term limit. So this issue is much bigger issue. Non-political people should not treat this as a political issue. Should not treat it as a separatism issue. Should not treat it as a, uh, uh, a security issue. This will eventually will affect their lives. This is a matter of conscience, even for the Chinese people who are living relatively free in other parts that's, of China. That's absolutely right. After 1989, after Tiananmen, uh, the United States granted a, a broad basically a green card, a permanent residence to any Chinese people who were living in the United States and saw it. Uh, do you think that we should do something like that for Uyghurs as well? 
Speaking out uh, or speaking out or taking actions against China is not an easy thing. We all we were clear about it. Yes. You know, it's it's we it it does not require much thinking. It's it's very uh, for the for the United States very important relationship. Uh, so what they can do in the meantime to do something humanitarian, for example, uh, the United States Congress or uh, president through either executive uh, order or legislation to grant asylum for Uyghur um, uh, mm-hmm. students or mm-hmm. asylum seekers in the United States. Just recently, Swedish government uh, offered a blanket refugee status for the Uyghurs. That's, that is supposedly were a relatively easy thing to do. And it's not going to upset the Chinese government is the way that they are uh, alerted or alarmed the Chinese authorities with the uh, global Magnitsky consideration. But it will provide a, a, a significant protection for people who wish to speak out, but who might not otherwise dare to because of fear of you know, having eventually to return. Yes, the the danger facing them is present and real. One, their passport. Most of, most of those students who have uh, lived in the United States uh, in the last uh, several years uh, could not uh, renew their passports. Chinese right. government saying, we can only give you a travel document, allow you to return. Uh, when they return, we have several uh, Uyghur students return, end up being in the camps. Yeah. So they don't want that. At the same time, uh, there is no money transaction between their parents who have been supporting these students in the United States. Uh, so inability to pay tuition and support their uh, life, and they cannot work without immigration status in America. So there, there are some uh, serious issues involving the Uyghur students and asylum seekers in the United States. That's one thing they can do. And also at the same time, uh, State Department should establish a scholarship uh, to Uyghur students. If if refugee status is too, too big of a deal, a too complicated process uh, in light of uh, anti-immigrant sentiment being expressed by some of the uh, Trump administration officials. Uh, scholarship is a, is one way to do it um, in a short it's term. Short term, not a permanent fix, but yeah. Well, thank you, Nuri. I mean, this has been, uh, it's great. I think we need to have more of this and uh, let's let's bring you back on uh, soon and, and, and get another update because this is uh, really one of the crises of conscience of our time and we all need to be very attentive to it. Thank you very much for your continued interest and support. Well, thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts like the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, Ta for Ta, and the brand new Middle Earth Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.